Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 27. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes, back, takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to get back the same amount. But love your enemies. And do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High. For He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. I want to speak to you this morning on the topic, love your enemies. Let's pray. Father, we ask that as we come into this word, that you would enlighten our hearts. Teach us, God. I pray for myself as I use words, my own words, to try to communicate your word. I pray that I will effectively speak your word to your people. Speak to our hearts. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. During the days of George Washington, a pastor named Peter Miller had a man named Michael who was his constant critic. Michael would seek to humiliate this pastor whenever he possibly could. At one point, Michael eventually was arrested for treason by the U.S. government. Pastor Peter rode horseback 70 miles to meet with the General George Washington to plead for the life of Michael. General George Washington said, I'm sorry, Reverend, I cannot pardon the life of your friend. Pastor Peter said, whoa, 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 whoa. He's not my friend. He's my greatest enemy. Washington was so struck by this, he pardoned the man's life. What kind of person would come all this way to save not a friend, but an enemy? I want to talk to you this morning about loving your enemies. And I want to begin with this question, do you love your enemies? The word love in our culture has become hollow. We talk about love so much in some ways we don't talk about love at all. We fall in love, 
We love Chick-fil-A. We, mar we marry for love. We kill for love. I mean, I didn't, but some of you might have. Love has become cheap. What is love, to quote a song? So much of the way we think about love in society is, is really self-centered. We love for our own purposes. And when we define love in this way, we have to ask the question, how is it even possible that we love an enemy? But Jesus is clear in verse 35, for example, he says, love your enemies. Do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. If you remember last week in verses 20 through 26, we talked about how Jesus took all the values of this world and just kind of turned them upside down. What he's doing now, he's getting to the heart of the matter and he's taking our greatest value, love. And he's turning love upside down. You thought this was love, let me redefine it for you, Jesus is saying. Let me talk about how my disciples love. Now this is a word for his disciples. This is not a word for broader society. This is a word to mark his disciples. Where do I see that? Well, in the very first line in verse 27, he says, I say to those who hear. All throughout the Gospels, we hear, we, we hear Jesus say, if you have ears to hear, let them hear. Meaning, uh, not physical ears. Of course, everybody has physical ears. Everybody can physically hear what he's being, what's being said. He's talking about the ability to spiritually hear. Meaning, some of you in this room will not hear what I'm preaching this morning. You'll hear it audibly, but you won't hear it. You will walk out of here unchanged by God's word. This is a message for his disciples. And for those who he this morning is calling to be a disciple. Maybe you came in here unconverted, unbeliever, not a disciple of Jesus Christ, and you're going to walk out of here a disciple. It's because this morning he gave you ears to hear. For those who have ears to hear, let them hear. Hear what? We have this unique ability to love. His disciples are called to love. And not just love in the same way the world loves, but to love their enemies. So how do we love our enemies? Let's look at the text. How do we do it first? We recognize that we just simply have a command to love our enemies. It's in verse 27 and 28. A new believer was asked by a pastor to talk to a group of Christians on the topic of the need to love. And the new believer asked the pastor, doesn't God command his people to love? The pastor replies, yes, God does. And the new believer said, well, pastor, if God commanded it and they're not doing it, I don't think they're going to listen to me. It's just that simple. We've been commanded to love your enemies. Meaning I can't give you any more persuasion than just telling you what God commands. God has commanded it. Look at verse 27. He says, without mincing his words, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those 
who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Now the Jews of Jesus' day, they knew exactly who their enemies were. Rome had dominated. Roman oppression and presence was felt in Jewish society from the taxes they had to pay to the soldiers that they would see every day to the crosses often lining the streets to the very king of the Jews that Rome had set in place. Many Jews of this day believed that when the Messiah comes, he would join them in their hatred for the enemy. And that he would destroy the enemy and set up Israel as the free kingdom God intended it to be. These words would then come across as nearly immoral for Jesus' original listeners. For those who hate you, do good to them. Verse 27. For those who curse you, they use their words to hurt you. Use your words to bless them. Verse 28. For those who abuse you, pray for them. Also in verse 28. It begins with our words. Let me ask you this question. Who are your enemies? Get some enemies in your head. Let's not say them out loud. All right, This is a rhetorical question. Keep it between you and the Lord right now. Who are your enemies this morning? We could think nationally. We have national enemies. We might think of terrorism or school shooters. We we could uh, think very intimately. For, For some kids in this room, it might be a classmate or even a teacher that presents in your life as an enemy. Or maybe for any one of us, it could be a a friend who even unintentionally has turned against us and has become an enemy, even though we still call them friend. For some in this room, your enemies might be in the streets. People who have wronged you. Wronged your family members. For others, your enemy might be someone who succeeded where you should have succeeded. An enemy in some weird way created out of your own sense of jealousy. For some, your enemy is just simply a mean-spirited individual. And you just try to avoid them. And for others... Your enemy might be in your own family, a a parent or a sibling that has hurt you in some fashion or maybe even a child who has disappointed you. I wonder who your enemies are this morning. The first thing we see in this text is that we, as we think of our enemies, are to use our words in a way that is, is loving to them. He says, bless them. To those who use their words against you, bless them. That word bless literally means good word. Meaning say a good word to them. I've recently encouraged uh, someone who has an enemy in their life that often uses their words against them. I said, try to think of like one thing that you can say good to them, about them. Like, I appreciate this about you. You know, most people, there's something that you can appreciate about them. Now, let's be honest. Some people, there's just nothing 
nothing good you can say, all right? But you can still say a, a, a word that is good to them, a word of encouragement, a word of love. You can still speak highly in an honorable and respectful way about your enemies to other people. Use your words, he says, to bless. To those who abuse, he says in verse 28, pray for them. Wow. Our first response is to not hit back. Our first response is to not pick up the phone and call. Our first response when abused is to pray. Now, let me just be clear really quick, a little asterisk side note here. This is not, Jesus does not say your only response is to pray. Meaning there are people in the Christian world who have not reported abuse, who have told women to keep it private, take it before the Lord, who have uh, intentionally or unintentionally told children if somebody's touching you or abusing you to not tell anybody. Listen, kids in the room, if you're being abused, tell a parent, uh, uh, tell a teacher, tell a police officer, tell somebody. All right, women, if, if he's hitting you, don't just pray for him. All right? Talk to the elders. Take him to the shed. The elders will take him to the shed. All right? Yeah, at the same time, let's just, let's just also understand the context here. For many of Jesus' original hearers, their abuse was coming from the authorities. What do you do in that case? You can't report abuse to the authorities when the highest court in the land is the one that's abusing you. Your only response then is to fall on your knees and pray. For all of us, we are to pray for our abusers, for our past abusers. We are to pray for them. Pray that God would bring them to their knees in repentance. Maybe you're praying for God to forgive them because you can't. Pray, he says, for your abusers. We use our words, then, to love our enemies. But it goes on. It's not just simply our words, but he, he, he also focuses on our actions. Love is not just about words. It's about how we act. In verses 29 through 31, he shows us two different examples of love. And before I get into them, let me just say this. If Baltimore City took what I'm about to read seriously, we would see a few less murders. Listen, you guys know somebody that knows somebody who killed somebody that killed somebody that killed somebody who killed somebody who killed somebody because somebody killed somebody. Retaliation spans years. Retaliation consumes entire families. In Baltimore last year, we had 309 murders. This year already, we are just beginning March, and we have 49 murders in Baltimore City. It's estimated that a third of all murders in Baltimore City are retaliation, which means at least 100, maybe more, at least around 100 homicides in Baltimore have to do with retaliation. What does Jesus say his disciples 
are to think of and act as it relates to this issue of retaliation. Look at verse 27. I'm sorry, verse, uh, verse 30, 32. After he sums up verse 31, do to others as you would do to them, he then applies it. Verse 32, if you love those who love you, I'm, I'm, let me back up, I'm sorry, I'm skipping too, too many verses forward. Verse 29, to one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other as well. From one who takes your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everybody who begs from you. The one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish others would do to you, do also to them. There are these two categories of people, those who seek to hurt you and those who seek to take advantage of you. For those who seek to hurt you, if they strike you on one cheek, he says, turn the other cheek. It's just that simple. Uh, uh, for those who seek to hurt you, they, they rob you and they take the, your outer garment. Uh, according to rabbinic tradition, the undergarment was actually more valuable because that covered your body. He's essentially saying if somebody robs you of the lesser, be willing to be robbed of even the greater. He goes on, give to everybody who begs from you. Meaning, don't just simply give to people who are going to return. Don't just simply give to people who you're going to get back from. But give to people purely out of love. Now, we have to ask a question here because th these, these verses are often misunderstood among Christians. Is this a strict command? Once and for all, this is always the way, you know, if I come up right now, let's just try it. Could we do this? I'm just going to slap Montrell on one side of the face. I just want to see what happens. <laughs> Let's just see how this goes. I'm just playing. But we got to ask, is this a strict command that we are to follow? Are Christians a, a, a certain kind of uh, uh, pushover? Imagine the chaos that would ensue if Christians... were robbed of their coat. And every Christian said, hang on a second, I got an iPhone here. Go ahead and hang on, got a, got a car, <laughs> you know? I mean, that's, that, that's the picture we're getting, we're getting. So if we're going to say we take it that seriously, let's take it that seriously. Uh, imagine the chaos that would ensue if every single person who ever asked for money received money from you until you were broke, is this what Jesus meant? Well, it doesn't really go along with the rest of the Bible. Romans 13 says that the, the government has a sword that God has given them for justice. Meaning it's, it's right for governmental authorities it, it, it's, it's right for thieves to get in trouble. You tracking with me? It's right to call somebody to account for what they've done. Also, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10, Christians are not allowed to enable somebody. If somebody 
2 Corinthians 3.10 is not working, they're supposed to in the Christian church to feel hunger pains. And so we're actually, there's times where, according to the Bible, we should not give. You see what I'm saying? So what is Jesus getting at? Leon Morris says if we follow this literally, we would end up with a large class of saintly beggars and successful robbers. I think what Jesus is getting at is actually pretty clear to anybody who knows how to read literature. He's giving us big pictures that pierce the heart to get at the heart. This is not some legalistic command that we are to follow in every situation. He's getting at the Christian attitude of love for enemy. And I don't want to get ahead of myself, but he's contrasting this with the sinner, the sinful attitude of only loving those who love you back. And so he's giving us these big pictures to say Christians are people who love their enemy, even when they're not loved back. He is preventing Christians from having a revengeful attitude toward those who have wronged them. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 34, we see that the Christian church there was persecuted and they joyfully accepted the confiscation of their belongings. Meaning they displayed love even in the midst of their persecution. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. We are not marked by retaliation. Followers of Jesus Christ are marked by love. We're marked by love. When we call somebody to an account, it is not retaliation. It's love for that individual. Even if there is an instance where we might say no to somebody who's asking of us, we only say no if that means greater love for that individual. Does that make sense? Because we are marked by love, not retaliation. Every wrong against you is not an opportunity for vengeance. Don't be known in this world as someone who's able to win every argument. Don't be known in this world as somebody who always has to have the last word. But be known by your willingness to be walked over at times in such a way that displays the love of Jesus Christ. Be willing to lose in this world. Be willing to lose not just the lesser, but the greater. Be willing to be punched, not just on one side of your face, but the other side of your face. Because we are marked by love. Now verse 31, he sums this all up. Treat others in the way that you would be treated. Now up until this point, we've been working through the command. It's not until now that we kind of turn in the text and we get to the meat of the matter. And we begin to see the foundation that Christians have in their ability to love others. 
And it's this. Christians don't love their enemies based on a legalistic command. Christians love their enemies based on who they are in Christ. Look at verses 32 through 34. Let me read the whole thing of these three verses to you as, uh, just for effect. He says, but if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. You do good to those who do good, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those who expect to receive, who you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. What good is it? What good is it? Well, what does he mean by this word good? I mean, let's, let's just, for a moment, let's argue with Jesus. Jesus, what good is it to love those who are unlovely? What good is it to love those who don't pay me back? What good is it to love those who don't treat me well? Help me understand, Jesus. If you want me to follow you, give, give, me, give me some understanding so that I might uh, know why I'm, I'm, I'm following you in this way. What good is it? Well, the Bible is clear. It is good to love the sinner. Why? First, it is good to be distinguished from sinners. Listen, John 17 says that Christians will be known by the way that they love. If sinners know how to love their families, if sinners know how to love their friends, if sinners how to know, they know how to have people over to their house who are going to pay them back and have them over to their house, if sinners know how to hang out with people who are fun company to hang out with, then what good is it? Meaning, how does it distinguish Christian love from the worldly love? Are you tracking with the thought here? What good is it? It is good to be distinguished from the world. How is our love distinguished from the world? It's not just in the way that we love those who are like us, though we should. It's in the way that we love those who act ugly toward us. In the way that we love the unlovely. Listen, I'm concerned so often Christians talk about loving the unlovely, yet as we think about who we actually have into our homes for dinner, it doesn't really look like this. As we think about who it is that we go out and hang out with on Friday night, it's often people that we benefit from. We get joy from these people. When, church, when do you pour yourself into somebody who you, 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 you just, I, I, I don't see how I can get anything back from this individual. When do we pour ourselves into the unlovely of society or, or into your neighbor, the person that drains you, your enemy? How do we love our enemies? It is good to be distinguished in our love. Secondly, it is good to love in a way that is not self-centered. So much of worldly love, fleshly love, is a self-centered kind of love. But the love that we're called to in Jesus is a love that gives to others, 
even when there is no clear, tangible benefit to us. Now, is there a reward? Jesus doesn't say that it's wrong to love for a reward. But Jesus says you're loving for the wrong reward. He actually goes on in the text and he says there is a reward. Verse 35, But love your enemies and do good. And lend, expecting nothing in return. And here's the reward. Your reward will, you, will be great. You will be sons of the Most High. Now pause with me for a second. Theologically, some of you in the room are concerned all of a sudden about works-based salvation. We, we become sons in the way that we love our enemies. Well, Ephesians 1 makes it clear that we are adopted as sons. You don't do anything to get adopted. It's purely the love of the Father. Uh, Ephesians 2 says we're saved not by works of righteousness, but by His grace. Jesus isn't contradicting these things. He's simply saying this. When you love like this, you will be shown to be sons of God. You will, your, your sonship will be put on display or another way, uh, we can say it will be confirmed that you are sons of God. Why? Well, he goes on to say that God is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. God is kind. He gives common grace. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. God is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. And so since God is kind, His sons ought to be kind. He sums it up in verse 36. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3 says that God is the Father of mercy. James verse 5, chapter 5, verse 11 says that God is tender in His mercy. Isaiah 30, verse 18 says that God exalts Himself through showing mercy. And maybe that's just it. Maybe the reason we have trouble loving our enemies is because we don't want God to be merciful to our enemies. I think of the story of Jonah. Jonah was called to take a message to the Ninevites. The Ninevites were a cruel people. Historians say that it's likely that Jonah's own family were, were, were killed by the Ninevites. God calls Jonah to go as a missionary to the Ninevites. He ends up getting there, long story short. He preaches to them. They respond to his message favorably, and they all repent. The story of Jonah ends with Jonah sitting on a hill just overlooking the city, just waiting for the wrath of God to come down on the Ninevites. Oh, the sun is hot. It's beating down on his head. And a plant grows just overnight. And that day, that plant provides such wonderful shade for Jonah in the midst of that Middle Eastern heat. And for the first time in the text, 
It says Jonah was exceedingly glad. He was so glad for this plant to provide some shade for his head. But God appointed a worm to eat away at that plant, to destroy the plant as quickly as the plant sprang up. The plant was gone. In his fury, Jonah cursed the plant. Now it was time for a lesson. Jonah, how are you going to care so much for this plant that you did nothing for? You didn't cause it to grow. You didn't plant it. It just sprang up. How are you going to care so much about this plant Yet you don't care about the 120,000 people in Nineveh created in my image who I decided to have mercy upon. Oh, is it possible, church, that when we think of the Ninevites, we think of, oh, yeah, yeah, they're the people who deserve God's judgment. They're going to get what's coming to them. And when we think of ourselves like Jonah, we think of ourselves as, oh yeah, we're the people who deserve God's grace. I think that was Jonah's problem. Jonah's problem was that he thought he was an Israelite. Thus, he deserved the grace of God. And his enemies did not deserve the mercy of God. Is it possible that you have trouble loving your enemies because you don't understand that you were at one time an enemy of God? Is it possible that you have trouble loving your enemies because you don't want God to show mercy to your enemies? Is it possible that you don't know what it's like to be broken and to be loved? By a God who pursues his enemy. I wonder, church, if there is anyone here who knows what it's like to be pursued by a God that you have rejected. I wonder if anybody here knows what it's like to be wooed by a God that you have mocked. Church, how many of you are glad that God is kind to his enemies? Oh, is it just me? Am I the only one that is glad that God showed kindness to me while I was still a sinner? How many of you are glad that God is kind to his enemies? Listen, some of you, you were rebels against God. Rejecters of truth. You got so drunk some nights, you don't even know how you got home. You don't even remember the drive and you were behind the wheel. You should have died. You should have at least got locked up with a DUI. How many of you are glad that God is kind to his enemies? Some some of you guys spent all of your money getting high, Living for the flesh, you find yourselves, you found yourself with nothing in the cold, nobody around you. Oh, but God still had food in your belly. 
He still somehow found a place to keep you warm on those cold nights. How many of you are glad that God shows kindness to His enemies? The only reason that we are here today is because God showed kindness to us while we were still a sinner. While we were His rejecter. While we mocked Him, God showered us in His kindness and in His mercy. The reason we misunderstand this text is because we often read this text and detach it from the cross. We read this text as moral instruction. We read this text and forget that the great teacher here went to the cross to die for the very disciples he's instructing. Oh, he loved us while we were still sinners. He died for us. If you are an enemy of God right now, you've been given ears to hear. Hear this Word. Come to Him. Find rest in Him. Find forgiveness. God turns His enemies into friends. Oh, how remarkable it is. How remarkable it is, George Washington said to Pastor Peter, that you would come all this way to save your friend. Oh, no, 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 no. I didn't come all this way to save my friend. I came all this way to save my enemy. Listen, church, how remarkable is it that Jesus would come all this way to save not his friends, but to save his enemies. To turn his enemies into friends. The great reward that we have as we love the unlovely, as we love our enemies, Our reward is Christ-likeness. Our reward is that we put on display the love that God had for me as I love those who are unlovely. Father, we ask that as we seek to love our enemies, that You would give us strength. That You would help us That we would love, not just out of some legalistic command, but out of an overflowing gladness that you loved us while we were your enemies. And that we are able then to extend and show that mercy to others in the way that we love. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Amen.